The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord, ready to study His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that we have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. It's based on grace. It's based on his completed work on the cross. And as a result of that, you have adopted us as your uh, royal sons. We are members of your royal family. We have been blessed with an infinite number of blessings, and you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Father, we thank you for your word that we have the completed canon of Scripture. We thank you for the way that you have revealed the Old Testament to us, that it gives us examples, uh, types of uh, every situation in life that we face, that we can learn from their examples, from their successes, and from their failures especially as we've seen in Abraham. And now as we wrap up our study of Abraham, we pray that you would just, uh, through the Holy Spirit, drive these principles home into our thinking. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time we started the close-up review of Abraham. We've been in Abraham for uh, a little over a year. And so there's just to make sure everybody gets this all together and pulls it all together in your in your thinking. I wanted to go back and review. So we begin last time. Where am I? Somehow we don't have the right show, slide show up here. There we go. Started off talking about how God used Abraham to teach and to illustrate key doctrines. Now this is one of the important things that uh, you as a believer need to understand as you read your Bible and as you study the Scripture, is that God gave these examples, these stories, these episodes to us in order to be examples. This is 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verses 1 through 3, that all these things happened as a, as a type, as an example for us. And... What we should do as Christians, you know, our ultimate goal is to think biblically. We're to renovate our thinking, not to think as the world thinks, but to think according to Scripture. So when we look at people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, you look at Joseph, you look at Moses, you look at Gideon, we think about these as real flesh and blood individuals who are facing the same kinds of problems, difficulties, uh, marriage problems, family problems, parental problems, children problems that we face. 
And what we do is we think, okay, how did they handle those problems? How did they deal with them? How did they succeed? In what ways did they fail? In what ways are they an example to us? And by being familiar with the people, the episodes, the events, that gives us the framework then for being able to analyze what they did, how they did it, what they didn't do, uh, how they used the promises, so that that then becomes a pattern for us. So then when we come to similar situations and events, In our life, we think, oh, now, wait a minute, this fits that kind of situation that David had over here, that Abraham had over here. Now, how did they do it? And that's why these these narratives from the Old Testament really carry such weight. You You come into the New Testament, and in the New Testament, you have didactic literature that teaches specific doctrines and principles in one form, but the examples, the flesh and blood, the outworking in, in the lives of people is what you find in the Old Testament. And one of the things that, that I've been challenging the prep school teachers with is that this is the way we teach doctrine to kids. You don't just teach rote doctrine or theology or abstract, but you take the lives of these people, these stories, especially with the younger kids, because they can really understand those stories, and you use those, but you use that to teach those more abstract doctrinal theological principles that we find in the New Testament. So we come to Abraham and ask the question, how is the life of Abraham utilized in the New Testament to illustrate, to teach certain uh, key doctrines? And in Hebrews 11.8, we see that it is by faith, that is by trusting in certain doctrines. When we look at that word by faith in Hebrews 11, it is not simply by the act of trusting. Trusting what? Again and again I say it's not this faith in faith concept that so many people think about. You know, just believe and everything will be okay. No, it's not just believe. It's believing doctrine, trusting doctrine. So it's a the active sense of trusting something, uh, but it also has to do with that which is trusted, that body of doctrine that is applied. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out, called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And that's the start of his of his spiritual advance. As we'll see, that's his his first test. And we covered this some last time. And in verse 9 we read, By faith he dwelt then in the land of promise. Never realized the promise. He lived in the land as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he is able to live in his present reality without having a permanent home, uh, without having ownership of the land, and he lived in light of a promise that he never saw fulfilled in his life, but it was so real to him that it defined his day-to-day existence. But he had to get there. And that's the process of his spiritual growth, which is what we're looking at uh, mostly this evening in terms of our review. So there's six basic doctrines that are illustrated in the life of Abraham. First of all, the Abrahamic covenant, which is a picture for us also of positional truth. The Abrahamic covenant emphasizes 
land, seed, and blessing. Then justification at phase one, the second doctrine that we looked at. Third doctrine that we saw in Abraham is justification at spiritual maturity. This is illustrated in James chapter 2, verses 21 and following. Then fourth, spiritual advance by the faith rest drill. This is what we're going to look at in our review this evening. And fifth, Abraham is a picture of the doctrine of election as he's referenced in Romans 9 through 11. And then sixth, it is the Abrahamic covenant that becomes the foundation for the whole doctrine of missions, of taking the gospel to other cultures, to other nations, to all the people in the world. All nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. So it's these six doctrines that are fundamental to understanding Abraham in terms of application for us. We looked at the first, which was the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has three components, which everybody ought to be able to say in their sleep by now. Land, seed, and blessing. And the land had specific boundaries, and there was a development of the land from all the land that you can see, and then in the next chapter, God expanded that and gave it specific boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And then the seed is, is defined as coming through Sarah, and that it would be a male child, and through him there would be many nations, and there would be kings and rulers that would come through him. And then the blessing aspect, that he was mandated to be a blessing to his neighbors, and that through the seed there would be a blessing to all nations. So those three components are then further expanded in the rest of the Old Testament. The land uh, paragraph, the land section, is expanded in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The seed component is expanded and clarified in the Davidic covenant where we learn that the seed goes through the line of David, the royal line. And then the blessing is expanded in the new covenant that it is a spiritual blessing that goes to all the nations and that's Jeremiah 31. So the Abrahamic covenant then becomes that that foundational structure for being able to understand the rest of the Old Testament. Everything else that happens in the Old Testament is really an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is a temporary covenant defining how someone in the position of the Abrahamic covenant lives. Now let me say that again. I'll say it a different way. If the Abrahamic covenant represents positional truth, they can't be changed. Because you're a Jew, you're in in Abraham as it were. And you have those promises because you're a Jew. The Mosaic Covenant comes along and tells how the person who is the seed of Abraham is supposed to live in the midst of a pagan culture. So in the Old Testament, you have that uh, same dynamic that we see when we come over into the New Testament and we find out that we're in Christ. That's our positional truth based on that baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And then we have all of the mandates and prohibitions and uh, commands in the New Testament, and that defines how a person who is united with Christ is supposed to live. And all that goes back to the Old Testament, to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and its extrapolation into the three other covenants. Then we looked at justification by faith alone last week, a doctrine that is so rarely taught 
and even more rarely understood today, that justification is based on our possession of Christ's righteousness. It has nothing to do with how good we are, with when we go to church, ritual, morality, any of these other factors. It's totally based on that righteousness we possess, which is imputed to us or given to us at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Paul builds the whole his whole development of justification by faith in Romans 4 on Abraham. And he goes to that passage in Genesis 15:6 which should be translated he had already believed in the Lord and he had accounted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. So Genesis 15:6 is a reference back to an event that occurred before Abraham was saved. It occurred before his salvation, I mean, not before his salvation, before he was called in Genesis 12. It occurs to that, that time when he was saved. Uh, it could have been when he was a child or as a young man. We don't know when it was, but it was prior to Genesis 12. The first time he trusted in God to provide him with salvation, at that instant God imputed righteousness to him and that becomes the basis for his salvation. Then we saw that in James 2, there's this picture of Abraham as being justified by faith, but the episode that's referred to there is the episode in Genesis 22 when he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. And we realize that that's not justification in terms of reception of eternal life, but that is the culmination of this process of spiritual growth that began with his justification by faith. And then as he grew and matured, he reaches spiritual maturity. And that final exam, which is the sacrifice with Abraham, and so there is a vindication here, a demonstration, as it were, a justification before men of the veracity of his doctrine, what he believed in his relationship with God. So those are two justifications. One, at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone when he receives the imputation of righteousness and eternal life, and then he goes through spiritual growth, and then the second justification is at the end of his life. What happens in between? How does he get from point A to point Z? Well, that's what we're going to look at uh, this evening in terms of our review. So James 2.21 said that was not our father, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. That's that vindication that came at the end of his life. James 2.22 says then, do you see that faith was working together with his works? Works being application. Take you back very briefly to understand what James is saying in the flow of his argument in James uh, 1 and 2 is that the hearer of the word, that is the person who is listening to the teaching of the word, needs to be a doer, that is an applier of the word. He believes it and that leads to works or application. That's the terminology that he's using. And so that it is by application that your faith is matured. That's what we have here. By works, faith was made perfect. That's that word teleao. Key word that I'll emphasize over and over again because of the way Paul uses it in Galatians and James uses it 
in James. So the scripture is fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's phase one when he first trusts Christ. And the the vindication of his faith occurs at the end with his obedience to God and the willingness to sacrifice Isaac because as Hebrews 11 points out, he knew that even if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. He knew God was going to be true to his word and, it, and, and his descendants would go through Isaac. Now that concept of teleao, of maturity, is crucial and it's rooted in James. The reason we have this illustration of Abraham in, at the end of James 2 is the development of the theme that is laid out in those first four verses of James 1. James says, My brethren, count it all joy, or consider it all joy, when you add up whatever you're going through. It's an accounting term. Add it all up. When you uh, reach your summation of all the events in your life, the conclusion is joy. So when you fall into various trials, tests, difficulties, adversities, count it all joy. Why? Because you know something. It's really a, a part, an adverbial participle in the Greek that has a causal sense. You're able to count it joy because you know something, because you know certain doctrines in your soul. So it's on the basis of knowledge that you're able to apply doctrine to the test that you fall into. Because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, produces not patience but endurance. It's hupomene, it's endurance. And then you see that this is a process, a procedure that we go through. And let patience, that is let endurance, hupomene again, let endurance have its perfect work. And see there the Greek word that's translated perfect work is teleao. That's that same word we saw in James 2.21. That faith is perfected by works. The works are the application of doctrine. So the application of doctrine is because of what you know when you have the test. So let endurance have its maturing, that's how I would translate that, have its maturing work. As you endure, that produces maturity. It produces growth. It produces a spiritual advance. That you may be perfect, mature, and complete in your spiritual life, lacking nothing. That's the process. James 1, 2 through 4 lays it out. That's the dynamic. It's testing. So how did Abraham get from point A to point Z? Test, 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 test. So... That is done by walking by faith as illustrated through those verses in Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abraham did this. That's the mechanic. It's trusting God. So he's the illustration of the faith rest drill as he moves from point A to point Z. And that comes through, through an application of doctrine. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place. That's his first test that we'll see. He goes from Ur the Chaldees. It's kind of an incomplete obedience, remember? He's told to leave his father's house, to leave his relatives, to leave everybody behind and just take off on his own. But he's an immature believer. He's a baby believer. 
he still wants to make sure he's got a little somebody along with him. So he takes his dad with him and he takes his nephew Lot with him and they go to Haran and they're there for a while until his father dies. And then they go on uh, to the land. Hebrews 11.9 summarizes all the tests that took place while he was in the land. And Hebrews 11.10 focuses on what he finally comes to learn, and that is what we talk about in terms of a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That we understand finally where God is taking us in the future. That we're headed for that kingdom, the same kingdom, that same city that Abraham is under, has been revealed to him that he understands and he realizes that his life is just a training ground in preparation for the future. And so he, the future becomes so real to him that it changed the way he lived and it impacted how he could handle the tests as he went through uh, spiritual growth in phase two. Same with uh, Sarah. I want to skip ahead to a couple of, pat, couple of verses. Let's go through the test. Just This will review us as we go through the test. We'll go through a review of Abraham's life. The first test was the test to go to a new land, as I just mentioned in Hebrews 11.8. To go to the new land, to leave the family behind. Now, to understand the tests, we have to go back and understand that the framework is what? The Abrahamic covenant. Now this is where something I'm going to have to study and we're going to have fun developing over the over our future time together is that the positional promises that God gave Abraham are reduced to three. Land, seed, and blessing. The tests all relate to one of those three promises. Now in terms of our position in Christ, how many... Aspects are there to that provision, that positional grace provision. Well, we've all learned that God gave us 40 things. Right? Oh, my. We have a lot of testing to go through. We have a lot of doctrines to learn. Because that's our positional reality, is all those things that God did for us. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's a lot more than 40. So the tests that we encounter are going to be tests related to understanding what God gave us at the instant of salvation because those are our eternal possessions that can never be taken away from us. So just as God tested Abraham with regard to the three components of that promise, land, seed, and blessing, we're going to get tested in relationship to understanding all the dynamics of the Christian life in terms of the what God's done for us, adopting us into the royal family, you know, all the aspects related to salvation, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, aspects related to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fact that we are also indwelt by Jesus Christ, just all these things. And that's what we're going to be tested on. So that means that before we have the test, we're supposed to acquire the knowledge. At least that's the general rule in education, although I understand that it always doesn't work that way. But we're supposed to learn it first and then apply it. So the first test is to go to a new land. 
And is he really going to trust God to provide for him in the geographical place that God's provided for him? And of course, we, we know that he's, he's a little uh, hesitant in uh, trusting God. So he goes to Haran first and he's there for probably 15 years or maybe 20. And then he moves on to the land finally. And then he gets tested in relationship to the land. I'm going to skip these verse, verses we have here. We'll just go to, to the second test. If you look at your, see if I have a slide for this, in Genesis 12:7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Now this is after he arrives in the land. To your descendants I will give this land. So this is the second statement of the land promise. To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the second test. Now, is he going to trust God and stay in the land, which is where God directed him, when the famine comes, or is he going to try to solve the problem on his own? Well, we know what happened. He tried to solve the problem on his own, which is, that's just what you and I do. We try to solve these problems on our own rather than saying, okay, this is where God wants me. This is how It's clear that God has told me that in terms of my life, there are certain boundaries, certain principles that I have, to, uh, I have to follow, and I have to stay within those boundaries. Well, it may seem difficult, but I just have to trust God and stay here. Well, we try to solve it ourselves. We get impatient. We try to handle it through all kinds of human viewpoint techniques, which is what Abram did. And he headed off to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. And while he's down there, one sin compounds another sin, and he lies about Sarah being his wife. She's really his half-sister, so he tells a half-life, which is really a whole lie. And while he's down there, what happens? Funny thing, he gets richer. I'm, I'm doing a study of Job right now. I can't wait. One of these days I'm going to teach through Job. But I'm doing a, doing a study of Job. And this is the misconception of Job's four friends. Is that when you obey God, you get blessed. And when you disobey God, you have adversity. And it has really impressed me this time as I've gone through Job that in those first two chapters, there's, about, there's three times when God says Job is blameless and upright he fears the Lord, and he, he, do, he does right, or he doesn't do evil. He, God really gives him a straight-A report card three times. And then after the first series of tests, it says, And Job wept, but he didn't sin. So he expresses the grief over the loss of his ten children, the loss of all of his material possessions, but he doesn't sin. Then he goes through round two of testing when Satan, of course, tests him in terms of his health. And then his uh, three friends, and the fourth one shows up later, and his three friends show up, and they sit there waiting for him to say something for seven days. They're all quiet, which was the cultural norm. And then they say, okay, Job, the real reason that you're suffering all this is because you did something wrong. And somewhere in here, you're a sinner. Otherwise, God wouldn't have zapped you like this. And see, this is how we get twisted around. We say good things happen because people are good, and bad things happen because people are bad. But Abram's out of fellowship, and he's down in Egypt, and God is just multiplying his wealth. And when he finally leaves Egypt, he's, he's wealthy. He's failed in his spiritual test. 
He's not trusting God, so he's, he's being tested in relation to the land. He's being tested with relation to faith, rest, drill, and grace orientation, and he fails. So God finally straightens him out, and he uh, goes back to the land. But he's picked up certain things that become the basis for further tests. That's just what happens with us. He picks up Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl. She doesn't show up for a few more chapters. But he, he and Lot become so wealthy that now when they get back to the land, which still has a famine problem, the land, which is what God promised him, can't support him. So now there's going to be this family rivalry. And so he's got to decide how he's going to handle adversity. And I just thought I'd go back through this chart again, see if you remember it. We have this famine, and we often have all kinds of tests in life. We're tests of things that are just inconvenient. We have to deal with people that are uh, just not doing the job the way they should. We have to deal with uh, bureaucracies and systems. We have health testing. We have financial testing. We have testing in the area of grief or loss. Uh, we have weather disasters. All these things that can happen. And we have to decide how we're going to respond to each one. And the issue there is always the ch- how are we going to choose to handle the situation? We can either handle it through human viewpoint or we trust the Lord and that so that the foundation of all of our problem solving is really the faith rest drill and that leads to the use of one of the ten problem solving devices. That's divine viewpoint. If we go to human viewpoint, we just forget trust, forget faith rest drill, and we operate on human viewpoint. We figure out really good rationalizations for what we're doing. It sounds good. It may even have a lot of doctrine as part of it. It may have a lot of truth in it. If you read through, this is one of the challenging things. I think this is why I've, I've never taught Job before, and I've just sort of tried to work my way through it. If you look at the statements that are made by Eliphaz and by Bildad, you know Bildad was one of the shortest people in the Bible? He was Bildad the Shuhite. You got Bildad and Zophar, and they come along, and there are a lot of things that they say that are right, but their structure is wrong, their framework is wrong. That's why it's so important to have, to, you know, we talk about framework here, to have a framework of biblical doctrine. Because even though you have components within your framework that are true, if they're not put together in the right structure, the structure is not going to hold weight. And so each one of these guys comes along and they say certain things. And next time you read through Job, read these things, and you'll see certain verses. And I'm sure there are verses that I've pulled out of. Oh, this is a great statement Zophar said here. It's true. But if you look at the context, he's positioned it within a faulty argument. And people always go into Job and they'll pull this verse out here and that verse out here and this verse out here. And that verse in and of itself in isolation expresses a truth, a doctrinal truth. But if you look at the whole context, it's wrong because the person who's articulating it is mixing truth with error. So that's, but that's what we all do. We rationalize, we justify, 
Look at Abraham. She's my, she's my sister. You know, my life's going to be threatened here, so I've got to protect myself, don't I? I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. That, that's, that's foolish. She's, she's, my, she's my sister. I'd say she's my sister. That sounds good. We do that all the time. And it's just human viewpoint trying to solve life's problems without really trusting God. So we develop these strategies that get very complex to protect ourselves from perceived danger, loss, whatever we think that the threat is. And they all just come out of our sin nature. And we develop them. They always involve emotional sins, anger, anxiety, resentment, bitterness. We have overt overt sins to control our environment, to control, manipulate people around us. We know that if we do it a certain way, they're going to respond a certain way. So we try to micromanage situations. All of these are just different ways that we seek to arrive at peace and stability and happiness and success in life without 100% trust and utilization of the problem-solving devices. So we see that Abraham has to go through this process because at the early stages here, he's half obeying and he's half failing. And that's just like us. But in that incremental stage, he learns a little bit more each time about the trustworthiness of God. And we also learned about the arrogant skills of self-absorption. And this is really illustrated in Lot because Lot is so arrogant that all he can focus on is the temporal reality. Abraham, when he comes to the third test and Lot's servants and Abraham's servants are fighting against each other and bickering. And they say, well, the land's just too small to support both of us. Abraham has learned from the previous test. The previous test, he flunked. He didn't respond by trusting God, no faith rest drill. He didn't respond by grace orientation. He didn't recognize God had graciously given him the land so God would graciously provide for him in the land even though there was a famine. So now he's back in the land. You still got a famine problem. Now he's got a people testing problem because Lot and his servants are causing problems. But Lot's totally self-absorbed and he's focusing on temporal reality. But Abraham's learned to be gracious. So he says, you want land? Take, take, take your pick of the land. And so Lot looks around and he says, the best looking land around here is down near the, uh, what is now the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. It's down in the uh, Jordan Valley and it's well watered and green like it is all the way down to Zoar in Egypt. And I made the point that obviously that's a meteorological observation that indicates that that the weather was weather patterns were different then. They've had global warming since then. Wow. It's now a desert. But back then, all of that Arabian Peninsula and Sinai Peninsula was well watered. And it was green. So that their internal combustion engines just really got them in trouble back then. So we saw a lot as a picture of self-absorption Self-indulgence, he, he wants that, that land, so he justifies it. He's willing to sacrifice his whole spiritual life 
so that he can live in the right place with the wealthiest. I mean, the Riviera on the Dead Sea was the place to live. And he wanted to be there because that's where the entertainment was, that's where the action was, and that's where the city life of his day was. So he's going to justify it in his mind, and that leads to self-deception where you're completely divorced from reality. And we really saw that picture when the judgment eventually comes on Sodom because his wife just doesn't want to leave. And that's why she finally she looks back. She just, she just can't pull herself away from all the carnality and all the attractions of the cosmic system. And so God judges her for that. So we learned about the uh, arrogant skills and the whole cycle from self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification to self-deception to self-deification where we become our own God. And that's the same process that you see illustrated in Romans chapter 1. And if we don't break this cycle through confession of sin and humility, realizing what God has done for us and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, First Peter chapter uh, 5, 5 through 7, then we're just going to continue to deteriorate until our lives just fragment and then we get the natural consequences intensified by, the, uh, by divine discipline. So the third test was a test to treat Lot with grace and generosity. Again, it's related to the land. And when it's over with, he passes the test and God said what? He takes him aside and at the end of chapter uh, 13, he says, walk in the land through its length and width for I give it to you. And so God praises him for passing the test. Then we come to the fourth test. Skip over these verses. Fourth test. The test is is related to blessing. We've had a couple of land tests. Now we have a blessing test. Abraham was mandated to be a blessing to those around him. So we see the invasion of these four kings. These four kings come from... Uh, all around the ancient Near East. So the test is going to be related to blessing, and it's going to be related to grace orientation. Is he going to deal with his pagan neighbors and with stupid Lot on the basis of grace and on the basis of God's character rather than his character? And as we looked at the map of the ancient Near East, here's the, here's the Mediterranean here. And then you have the Fertile Crescent over here. This area ought to be familiar to any of you who are keeping up with what's going on in Iraq because it's this whole area which is modern Iraq. And then up here is modern uh, Turkey. So you have these four kings. Arioch comes from eastern area of modern Turkey. Tidal, who comes from the western part of modern Turkey. Amraphel, who came from the uh, area of Iraq, and then Keterleomer, who comes from southern Iraq uh, down near the Persian Gulf. And this four-king alliance is going to invade down into uh, the area of Canaan. And they come in from the north, and they sweep down on the eastern side of the, of the Jordan River Valley 
all the way down to the uh, five cities of the valley. They wipe them all out, take everybody captive, including Lot and his family, and then they do a button hook around the south shore of the Dead Sea here, and they engage in a major battle with the Amalekites, who were the really bad guys of the ancient world. They had one of the toughest military forces in the ancient world. So obviously this four-king alliance is made up of well-trained soldiers. They take out the Amalekites. They they circle and they head back up through Canaan, uh, wrecking uh, destruction everywhere they go. And as they get up north into the northern part, Abraham is going to catch up with them and he is going to uh, take them by surprise, just like Sam Houston did at the Battle of San Jacinto when he defeated Santa Ana and the Mexicans and won Texas independence. And Abraham does the same kind of thing. And he defeats them and he rescues all the captives, all these pagan captives from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities along with Lot. And then, so he's passed that test. He's demonstrated that he can be a blessing to his pagan neighbors. And that's an interesting example for us that we can be good and kind to the pagans in our environment who are completely hostile to everything that we stand for. And then, let's skip through a couple of other slides here. Oh, this is a slide. I knew I had this slide somewhere. That was their path. We'll just skip past that. Then he gets another test. The fifth test is the test to express his gratitude to God. His test to express his gratitude to God. And that's when he returns to Salem, which is Jerusalem now, and he meets this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, we don't know who Melchizedek was. The term Melchizedek was probably a title meaning king of righteousness. We don't know who he was. Somebody misunderstood me when I taught this. We don't know who he was. There is a unanimous opinion among Jewish rabbis that Melchizedek was Shem. Now, that's very possible. Shem did not die until ten years before Abraham died. And it's really interesting that there is this unanimous opinion. I mean, there's no unanimous opinion among Jewish writers. So for there to be a unanimous opinion among the rabbis, both pre-Christian and post-Christian, that Melchizedek was Shem is a very interesting fact. And it might be true. And I, I tend to think it, pro- it very likely was true, but you know, I'm not going to fight or die for it or get in an argument over it. It's just a, an interesting fact. The reality is, is that Melchizedek represents a royal priest, and he's going to be the type of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this event, Abraham has had a victory, and so he gets to express his gratitude to God, and he does so by giving a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek as a offering of gratitude to God for what he has done. And he also refuses to uh, take anything from the king of Sodom because he's not. he wants it very clear that his victory and his involvement in the battle was related to uh, his obedience to God and it didn't have anything to, to do with the uh, uh, perverts in Sodom. Then we come to the sixth test, which is in chapter 15, which is again related to the seed. Now we've gone through a couple of tests related to the land, two tests related to blessing, and now we have a test related to the seed. It's been some time now since God promised Abraham uh, descendants. 
and it hasn't happened yet. And so uh, Abraham apparently was beginning to worry about this a little bit. And so God comes along in chapter 15 and he gives him a command. That's how you know it's a test because there's a command. And because when there's a command, then there's a test related to obedience to the command. And the command is, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, uh, your exceeding great reward. And it is in chapter 15 that he makes it clear that the descendant will come from his own body. It won't be his servant Eliezer. He's not going to adopt the heir. It's going to be through his own body. And the covenant is cut at this point. That's the correct terminology. The covenant is cut. And the terminology is debated, or the reason for the terminology is debated, but it could be because they literally slice the sacrificial animals in half and they lay them out and then normally uh, this would be like every time you bought a house, have a real estate contract, you'd take your animals out and you'd sacrifice to seal the deal. It wasn't just a little uh, notary stamp on the document. You would take a sheep or a goat or a bullock and you would sacrifice it and you'd split the animal in half and then both parties signing the contract would walk between the two halves of the animals. But God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram and God, symbolized by this this smoking torch, goes between the animals indicating that God alone is bound by the contract. It's not a conditional contract. Abraham, I'll give this to you if you do this, this, and this. It is an unconditional contract or a unilateral contract that God binds himself alone to, that he is giving the land, giving this promise to Abraham. It was called a royal grant treaty in the ancient world as a reward to someone for their obedience and as a blessing from a superior power or king to someone who had been faithful to them. So in verse uh, 18 of that chapter we read, So on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. So again, it's a reiteration of the land. Then we come to a test related to the seed again in, ver- in chapter 16. And this time, it's, is, are we going to trust God to provide the seed through Abraham and Sarah, or are we going to try to make another human viewpoint and run? And, of course, we remember the story where Sarah said, Look, I'm just getting a little too old for this, and I haven't had any children yet. Why don't you take my good-looking uh, Egyptian uh, servant as your concubine, and then through her you will raise up the seed that God has promised. And so Abraham then followed his wife's advice and got himself into trouble. And the result of that was the birth of Ishmael, who becomes the father of a certain segment of Arab tribes. And that's, this is where the whole Arab-Israeli conflict uh, had its beginning. So he fails that test. Rather than sticking with it, persevering, and trusting God, no matter how impossible it seemed that Sarah could have a child, uh, he gave in to a human viewpoint rationalization. Then we have another test. Again, it's related to the seed in chapter 17. And here the covenant is reconfirmed, but now a sign is going to be given of the covenant. Almost every covenant has a sign. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Now, when you're 100 years old or 99 years old, 
then that might be some bit of a challenge. And he is told that he is to be circumcised and everybody in his house is to be circumcised because this is going to be a picture of sanctification, the removal of the influence of the flesh of the sin nature. So again, it's related to the seed because it's through the uh, phallus that procreation takes place. And so this is a setting apart of the uh, whole uh, sexual organs for God. And it is through this set apart uh, process that God is then going to provide the promised seed in the coming chapters. So it's, a, again, a test related to the seed, and he trusts God, and he and all those in his household are, are circumcised. Again, God reconfirms the covenant with him, and he states, in addition, that it's going to be with Sarah, and that he will establish the covenant uh, with, uh, with the son, who's go- now going to be named Isaac. So we see the first indication of the name of Isaac, And so the contract is expanded even further. We get more and more detail. Then we get a ninth test in chapter 18. And again, this relates to blessings. So we have seen tests related to the land, tests related to the seed, tests related to blessing. And again, we have a blessing test. And these visitors show up. Three anonymous visitors, men, it turns out one is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and the other two are angels. And as soon as Abraham sees them, he jumps up and he runs out to greet them. He tells them to sit down. He washes their feet. He shows tremendous graciousness. He goes out and he gets a bullock and he kills it, has it slaughtered and butchered and prepared a meal. And all this is going to take time. And so he's very... Uh, hospitable to his visitors, and he passes the grace orientation test. And then we're going to have another test by the time we get down to verse 16. And this is a test, again, of grace orientation. Because God is going to take Abraham into his confidence and tell him that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities along the Dead Sea. And, of course, that's where Lot lives. And so it's a test to see if if, uh, Abraham is going to exercise a little impersonal love towards Lot and says, saying, well, you know, this guy's just been a real problem all along. His, his people were always fighting with my people. He has never demonstrated any kind of uh, positive volition. He's just never concerned with spiritual things. It's about time God judged him and took him out of the picture. No, he doesn't do that. He says, okay, he's... He's my nephew, no matter how messed up he is, no matter how wrong he is, no matter what he's done to me. God, are you, what, are, what are the parameters here for saving him? And he walks through this step. Well, God, would you save the city if there were 50 righteous men there? If there were 45, if there were 40? And he works it all the way down until he says, well, if there were only, only 10 there. And uh, God doesn't really answer the last one. But he does give a lot an opportunity to escape. So God sends the two angels down to Lot to uh, uh, Sodom, and they warn Lot. We have the whole episode with Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and the daughters escape, and the city is judged. And then we get this this horrible picture of Lot. And his two daughters, they just really don't want to leave. They just get far enough away to avoid the judgment. But they can't leave that whole 
mental attitude, lifestyle behind. They just can't give it up. They're not focused on uh, eternal things at all. And so they go into a cave and they get, the daughters get him drunk and then they commit incest with them. And they have two children, Moab and uh, Ben-Ami, who become the, the, the progenitors of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, this, of course, sets the stage for all the problems that are going to occur down through history between the Jews and the Moabites and the Ammonites. And, but Abraham has functioned honorably. He has passed the test of being a blessing to his undeserving neighbors and undeserving relatives, and he has dealt with them in grace orientation. The eleventh test occurs in Genesis chapter 20. And again, it relates to the seed. How is he going to protect the seed? And is he going to continue to trust God? Sarah still isn't pregnant, so now they go to live in uh, uh, Philistia, in Gerar, and Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife again. Why? Because he's afraid for his life. Rather than trusting God, he's afraid somebody's going to kill him and take Sarah for his wife. So she must have been a very beautiful woman, and there must have been a real problem in the ancient world with uh, this kind of thing, because otherwise, why is he constantly afraid that that these kings are going to uh, kill him, do away with him, and steal his wife for their harem? So that must have been an element of the pagan, pagan culture. So rather than trusting God, And telling the truth, he lies again, more negative consequences occur, and God intercedes and he closes the womb of all the women in Gerar, which obviously took some time before they realized that nobody's getting pregnant, no babies are being born, and then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, comes to him and recognizes that this is the, the problem's really Abraham. So he fails the test that's related to the seed, he fails to trust God. But he's learning. He's learning that God's the one who's going to protect him. And no matter what, that seed's coming. And the child is going to be born. He's going to be born through Sarah. And that happens uh, in the next chapter. Chapter 21, Isaac is born. Again, there's a test to protect the seed. Now there would be the threat of rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's 13 years older. 13 is the age where you come to your inheritance. Sarah's smart at this point. She comes to Abraham and she says, you've got to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael because there's a threat to Isaac's inheritance. And Abraham learned the first time you don't listen to your wife, but you don't listen to your wife when she's foolish and in carnality. But men, it's okay to listen to your wife if she's using good sense and doctrine. And so at this time, uh, Sarah's using good sense and doctrine, and God appears to Abram and says, listen to her this time, and send Hagar and Ishmael away to prevent the inheritance dispute and to protect the seed. So he trusts God. He sends uh, Hagar and Ishmael away, and that protects the seed. Then we come to his final exam in chapter 22 where God uh, tells him to take Abraham, that promised son, take him to Mount Moriah, 
and to sacrifice him. So again, it's a test related to the seed. It's a test related to faith, rest, drill. And it's a test related to his personal love for God. Is the promise of God more real to him than his circumstances? Is he going to love God so much that he'll do anything that God asks him to do? Even if it means to take the life of this cherished son that he waited for for so long. And he reasons, though, based on Hebrews 11, what we're told in Hebrews 11, he reasons from the doctrine of his soul that God's promise that I'm going to have a multitude of descendants through Isaac. Therefore, God, who's always been true to his word, must be true to this word. So even if I kill Isaac, God can bring him back to life, so that must be what God's going to do. So he's willing to, he never bats an eye, he never gives it a second thought. He takes Isaac to Moriah, lays him out on the altar, grabs the sacrificial knife, comes to the point where he's going to kill Isaac. God stops him, and he's demonstrated, he's passed the test, that he's trusting God no matter what. And God provided a substitute, a perfect picture of salvation, that Jesus Christ is our substitute. God provided a ram that was caught in the brush, and this became the substitute for Isaac, just as Jesus Christ is the substitute for us on the cross. And so salvation is based on substitutionary atonement, a lesson that is pictured on Mount Moriah. So that is the 13th test. Abraham passes these tests, according to Hebrews 11.10, because he had a future focus. The reality of God's plan for him in the future was greater than his present circumstances. And that's the challenge to us, is to grow to that point, to learn that no matter what's going on in our life, this is only temporary. This, it's only this world. It is a future that God has prepared for us, that he is preparing us for. And we have to go through these tests, just as Abraham did, just as every other believer does, in order to be prepared to have the capacity to properly function in terms of the responsibilities and the privileges that God's going to give us to reign as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. And that's the focus. Abraham pictures that. And so after we went through chapter 22, everything after that is a, is a footnote. It's almost an appendix. It just kind of ties up the loose ends. We learn about Sarah's death and her burial in chapter 23. And just prior to that, there's the brief uh, genealogical note going back to the cousins back in Padan Aram. And the focus there is that the descendants of Nahor produce this woman, Rebecca. And that's the foreshadowing because Rebecca is going to be the wife of the promised seed, Isaac. Chapter 24 is the story of Abraham sending his faithful servant back to the homeland to find a wife. Now, he's not going to marry Canaanite. He's not going to marry a pagan from the promised land. We're going to go back and find a family member that a cousin and that will provide a better wife for Isaac. And that's the story of chapter 24, how God provides a wife for Isaac for the progression of the seed, for the progression of the promise. And then chapter 25 wraps things up with Abraham. We learn about his second marriage to Keturah and the children that are born through Keturah, which give birth to various uh, nations and ethnic groups, including the Midianites. And, of course, Midian played a primary role in Moses' life 
and in the life of the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and getting ready to go into the land. And that's the con- they're the ones who are reading this for the first time. And they're sitting there going, oh, that's where the Midianites came from. That's why Moses was protected by the Midianites. They're really our cousins. And so all this sets the background for understanding Exodus. Then Abraham dies at the age of 175 years. He's an old man and full of years, gathered to his people. And then we came to the brief genealogy of Ishmael in 2512. And that's a short, brief genealogy. This is what happened to the descendants of Ishmael, the 12 princes. And that brings us up to the beginning of the next section that begins in Genesis 25:19. This is the genealogy, the Toledot. This is what happens to Isaac. So now we're back on target starting in verse 19. This is what happens to Isaac, Abraham's son. And we'll learn what happens to Isaac. Isaac and Rebecca. Now, next Tuesday night, there will not be any Bible class. Next Tuesday night, I'll be in Dallas at the pre-trib rapture study group, which meets every year the first time, and, and I've gone to that for many years, and it's going to be very good. I think some of you are going, and that's going to be tremendous, but we won't have Bible class next Tuesday night, so make sure you're You have that on your calendar. No Bible class next week. And then when I come back, the week after that, which will be the 13th, we'll start with Isaac. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you so much that you work with us. As we look at Abraham, we see his failures, but we also see the successes. The failures sometimes outnumbered the successes. We realize that you love us, and despite the fact that we are fallen Uh, sinful creatures you deal with us in grace and you constantly work in our lives to build us up spiritually to strengthen us and to prepare us for that future destiny father we pray that from abraham we will learn these lessons that we have studied and that you will uh, use that to prepare us for our future destiny we pray this in christ's name amen